Rumpole Redeemed by John Mortimer with Timothy West as Horace Rumpole and Prunella Scales as his wife, Hilda. The cold light of dawn breaking over the Gloucester Road found me shaving, and while I did so, singing an old music hall song much enjoyed by my father. They hadn't been married for a month or more When underneath her thumb went Jim Oh, isn't it a pity that the likes of her Should marry with the likes of him Oh, isn't it a pity that the likes of her Should marry with the... By the way, Rumpel, have you been keeping up with your exercises at Lysander Club? Uh, have you been working out regularly, Rumpel? Well, of course I have, whenever I get the chance. So what stopped you then? Mm. Pressure of work. Oh, really? The cross-examination had started in a quiet and casual manner, but now I sniffed danger. At the Lysander, they tell me they hardly ever see you on the exercise bicycle. You should be extremely grateful to that girl in Chambers who's doing your marketing. Lucy Gribble. Yes, Lucy. Lucy was kind enough to get you into the Lysander so you could work out, Rumpel. Working out such hard work. But, but I, I do go there whenever I can. Look in the book and you'll see I've signed in. I have looked at the book and I've seen Lucy Gribble signed in for you. Perhaps you'd be good enough to tell me how many times you went to the club with Lucy? Well, off and on. Look, I, I'd better be getting down to Chambers, see what's around. Don't prevaricate, Rumpole. I have spoken to Lucy Gribble. That was it, then. I stood and watched my defence collapse like a tent in a tornado. I have spoken to Lucy Gribble, and she had to admit that on most of the occasions when you asked her to sign you in, you didn't join her. You were notably absent, Rumpole but no doubt shortening your life, overdosing on red wine in that favourite wine bar of yours. Can I change my plea? Guilty. Of course you are. What can we do about you, Rumpole? Well, I can only say I do find bicycling nowhere to ghastly piped music deeply boring, even with an occasional vegetable cocktail as a treat. Boring? Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry I can't provide a few murders or a bank robbery or a nice long fraud to keep you entertained. But you can't live entirely for pleasure, Rumpole. You've got to put up with a bit of boredom occasionally if you want to keep yourself alive. So, it's entirely up to you. I can no longer take any responsibility for you. <clears throat> At which she left the kitchen, where breakfast, together with much else, was now over. I sensed that, like my old darling Wordsworth, I was about to be taught to feel the self-sufficing power of solitude. Shortly after that, I heard the sound of angry hoovering from the sitting room. My case of serious non-compliance with exercise requirements was clearly lost, and I was free to go. I knew that the chill winds of disapproval would still be blowing round our mansion flat, so that evening I delayed my homeward journey and wandered into Pomeroy's wine bar, 
lonely as a cloud. I had just ordered my first glass of Chateau Thames Embankment. Rumpel! When I heard a brisk upper-crossed voice at my elbow. <laughs> Rumpel, I wasn't a word with you. Really? It was Archie Prosser, the newest arrival at our chambers. I want to invite you to lunch. Invite away, old darling. I hear they do an excellent liver and bacon at your club, preceded by a dozen oysters and the half-shell with summer pudding to follow. And if that's washed down with some vintage unheard of in Pomeroy's, topped off with a reasonable brandy and cigar, I shall be delighted to visit your club. You mean a sheriff? Hmm. Of course I mean the sheriff. Oh, t talking of which, I'm going to put Bernard up for membership. I think he'd appreciate that, don't you? Bonnie Bernard, you're speaking of my favourite solicitor. I feel sure he would. And I'm equally sure I'd enjoy lunch there. Very kind of you, Archie. I'm afraid I wasn't thinking exactly in terms of the Sheraton. All right, if you insist. What were you thinking in terms of? The Ritz? <laughs> Not exactly, Rumpel. In fact, I was thinking in terms of Worsfield Prison. We live in an age when our political masters are forever cracking down on things. There's very little cracking up on things. There's a complete absence of government pronouncements offering us all a free Guinness and steak and kidney pudding on the national health and hoping we all have a good time. The result of all this cracking down and locking up is that the prison population has risen to record levels... The nicks are bursting at the seams, the mad and the bad are packed in with the merely muddled. In the face of this wave of overcrowding, the Bunyan Society, named after a devout and imprisoned author, stands like Canute, publishing facts and figures and protesting at the incarceration of 15-year-olds, the absence of education and the failure to stop reoffending. Home Office ministers receive these reports politely, perhaps even read them, and continue to crack down as before. The Bunyan Society's reply had been to arrange, so Archie Prosser now told me, a lunch in Worsfield Prison, where the great and the good could show their solidarity with those of my customers whom even the Rumpole magic touch couldn't save from custody. Now, I'm on the committee of the Bunyan. I suggested we should have a representative of the old-fashioned criminal defender present at our prison lunch. <laughs> you'll be at home, Rumpel. Hmm? I'm sure you'll know lots of people there. Very possibly. The menu featured grey mints, watery mashed potatoes, digestive biscuits and a blue plastic mug of tepid water. The tables were set out in a main assembly area, and at each one, a member of the great and the good shared the feast with representatives of the small and the iffy. I sat between two thieves, one of whom was so redeemed that he now worked for the Bunyan Society. My name's Brian Skidmore, Mr. Rumpole. Oh, pleased to meet you, Mr. Skidmore. I could read it anyway, on the label pinned to his jacket. He was a pale-faced fellow with a high aquiline nose and premature baldness, which added to the monkish nature of his appearance. Do call me Brian. Everyone in the Bunyan does. Life has been really rewarding since I decided to go straight. Since your redemption. Redemption? Yeah, you're so right, Mr Rumpole. 
I've been kept busy talking to prison reform groups, probation officers, social services. The usual suspects. Yeah, yes, yes, Mr. Rumpole. My book's coming out next year. Set a thief. I'll see you get sent a complimentary copy. Oh, thank you. How does this grub suit you, Mr. Rumpole? Bordering on cruel and unusual punishment. <laughs> Nourishing, though, eh, Chirpy? Oh, this inmate's Chirpy Malloy, Mr. Rumpole. Oh. Now, you were never in my brief, were you, Mr. Rumpole? I never had that pleasure. Me being a Malloy, and you always appearing for the Timpsons? <laughs> the Timpsons and the Malloys. The Montagues and the Capulets were best friends compared to your two families. We Malloys generally use Mr. Arkwright in Queen Alexandra's buildings. You heard of him? Of course I know Percy Arkwright. I believe as a defender he's a great help to the prosecution. <laughs> you mean I'd be better off with you, Mr. Rumpole? Perhaps. If you consult Mr. Bernard, solicitor of Camberwell, he'll lead you to me. I would say I'd remember that for next time. But there's not going to be a next time. Oh? I'm sure of that. Chirpy has decided to go straight, Mr. Rumpole. Oh, to be honest, I've got a new girlfriend now. She doesn't like me going inside, Mr. Rumpole. She's always on about it. Says she gets lonely nights. Now, I've got to listen to her. I'm going to get a job round her father's Videos Are Us, and that'll be the end of this prison malarkey. You mean you're going to buy your own aftershave from now on, eh, Chirpy? <laughs> That's right, no. What's that supposed to mean, Chirpy? <laughs> Chirpy here liked to break and enter homes in smart areas where people were off on holiday. After he'd made his selection of the valuables, he gave himself a nice hot bath. Didn't you, Chirpy, eh? Ah, it was always better than we had at home. Always nice warm towels and a good selection of toiletries. Use of the electric razor. And that imperial leather soap, didn't you used to say? Poor Les Homme's aftershave, that was a good one. Oh, and machismo. And wasn't it Peruna did that one, Mr. Rumpole? I'm afraid such things are a mystery to me. <laughs> Welcome, visitors and members of the Bunyan Society. We are honoured by the presence of Brenda Haygate, the Home Secretary, who will say a few words. Brenda Haygate's pageboy haircut was neat and burnished. She was wearing a bright green suit, and her high-heeled pointed toes clicked as she crossed the stone floor to speak to us. Thank you. She was one of the government's chief crackers down. But she smiled throughout her speech like an extraordinarily successful schoolgirl who had suddenly found herself promoted to headmistress. Now, look, I know some of you think that prison doesn't work, but I'd like to introduce an ex-prisoner to you now for whom it has worked extremely well. So well, in fact, that he is now a valued worker in your society. Will you please welcome Brian Skidmore? <laughs> Ah, thank you. <clears throat> well, uh, I, I'm not used to this. Uh, this is worse than a prison sentence. <laughs> all I can say is, I have to thank a lot of people. First of all, Mr. Frank Dalton, when he was governor. Now, I was up on a charge for something, and he said, Why don't we see you in chapel, Skidmore? There's something we get to learn there. Do you know what it is? Well... Of course, I didn't know whatever he was talking about. And when I heard what they read out from the Bible, oh, I wasn't any the wiser. <laughs> the words were, the redemption of their souls is precious. I didn't know what redemption was in those days, <laughs> but I do now, because Mr. Dalton explained it. We could all get off crime 
if we tried hard enough. <laughs> well, with a bit of help, we could. <laughs> so he arranged to put me in touch with the Bunyan Society. They gave me a job, uh, making the tea mostly. <laughs> and now I'm under manager in charge of events. So, thanks for coming and a special vote of thanks to the Home Secretary for agreeing to fit us into her busy schedule. <laughs> As the lucky guests were released to the world and the unlucky returned to their cells, the model ex-prisoner came up to me for a confidential word. Chirpy, he'll never make it, you know. Never make what? William, he'll never go straight. Not poor old Chirpy. He'll leave here with no money and probably no job. No one to look after him. Well, what about his girlfriend and her father? Videos are us. Oh, she hasn't bothered to wait for him. Well, that's what I heard in the chat round here. Of course, Chirpy doesn't know that yet. He'll be the last to know. So I doubt that job's still open. He'll drift back to the Malloys and, well, you know what that means. I'm not sure that I do know exactly. I'm afraid he'll be looking for a house where the milk's been cancelled, if you know what I mean. So, you think Chirpy Malloy's incapable of redemption? We can hope for the best. We can always hope. But we've got to face the facts, Mr. Rumpole. This is it. The facts have to be faced. Since Hilda's discovery of the fraudulent entries in the Lysander Club's records, home life in Gloucester Road began to feel like an extended visit to the Worsfield Nick. Selfish, ungrateful, irresponsible, opinionated, willful, and not to put too fine a point upon it, a pain in the neck to all who have to deal with you. I can no longer take any responsibility for you. <sighs> Archie had made me a member of the Bunyan Society, and I took refuge in some of its meetings, where I was greeted warmly by the reformed Brian Skidmore. He told me that Chirpy Malloy had been released, and there was no news, as yet, of his having slid back into a life of crime. I was in my chamber's room when Claude Erskine Brown stole in, looked down the passage as though he feared being spied on, and carefully closed the door. Rumpole! Rumpole! Uh, yeah. I don't know if you've heard any rumours... Rumours? Of course I've heard rumours. Where do you think life in chambers would be without rumours? Well, if you've heard any, don't believe them. Why ever not? I usually believe rumours. But so far as politicians are concerned, I never believe anything until it's been officially denied. Politicians? Did you say politicians, Rumpole? That's what I said. So then you've heard? Heard what exactly, Erskine Brown? About me and... Well, her. Oh, I knew it would leak out eventually. <sighs> Here I thought we go again. Claude Erskine Brown, unlike the blessed Brian Skidmore, appeared irredeemable. Love provided as irresistible a temptation to him as crime did to such weak-minded characters as Chirpy Malloy. The only difference was that Erskine Brown's infidelities, unlike Chirpy's burglaries, tended to remain in the world of dreams. As I was taught by my old blind law tutor at Keeble College, a crime requires a guilty act with a guilty intent. Dear old Claude had the guilty intent most of the time. It was the guilty act he found hard to pull off. There's only one thing I beg of you, Rumpole. 
And I know I can count on you because of our long friendship over the years. Ah, you want a bit of free legal aid? Well, not that. It hasn't come to that. It's just that if you hear my name mentioned in connection with a well-known politician, mm -hmm. if you hear my name mentioned in connection with, for instance, the Home Secretary, just say you know there's absolutely nothing in it. Erskine Brown, not the Home Secretary. You don't know her, Rumpo. Indeed I do. You want to be careful she doesn't crack down on you, Claude. I had the privilege of sitting next to her at dinner in the Law Society. We really hit it off. She told me she found me a witty and sympathetic companion. Mrs. Justice Erskine Brown was at this dinner party, was she? The, oh, no, no. Philly was away on circuit somewhere. Ah, so the Home Secretary had you to herself? Almost entirely. I walked her to her car and she kissed me, Rumpel. I kissed the Home Secretary and she kissed me back. I suppose I ought to congratulate you. There's a sort of potent sexuality about her. I can't say I noticed. I always thought she was terribly attractive on the telly, but in the flesh. Oh, we may meet for lunch or even go to the opera. The possibilities are endless. Of course, we'll have to be extremely careful, so oh. do remember, Rumpel, this conversation never happened. <laughs> At which Claude left my client's chair and slunk off on whatever business he had in hand. <laughs> The Chelsea home of TV soap star Adele Anderson, shopping mall and central station, was burgled while the nation's sex goddess was on holiday in Menorca with her latest beau. I don't suppose you've been back to the exercise club, have you, Rumpole? Valuable jewellery was stolen. If you could take your mind off crime and think about your health, Rumpole, work out daily and stop reading the newspaper. Look, uh, uh, valuable jewellery was stolen... The remarkable thing, according to the police, was that the thief had made prolonged use of the bathroom. Wet towels were left on the floor, and a, a prodigious amount of bath salts and various toiletries had been made use of. <sighs> Chirpy Malloy strikes again. Chirpy Malloy? I have no idea what you're talking about. The bathing burglar. I advised him to consult Bonnie Bernard when he was next in trouble. No doubt I'll be getting the brief for the defence. No doubt you'll be getting a nasty little heart attack if you don't exercise, Rumpo. Poor old Chirpy. I'm afraid he's past redemption. I don't know about this Chirpy, whoever he is, but you are certainly past redemption. Just because I don't like bicycling to nowhere. Of course, if you're looking for an early death, Rumpo, and you can't be bothered to look after your health in any way, that's entirely up to you. Just don't expect me to do anything about it, that's all. <sighs> the period which followed Chirpy Malloy's arrest for serial burglary and stolen jewellery was not a golden age in the life of Rumpole. The sentence passed on me at home was clearly a long one. And there was no hope of parole, or indeed any clear indication of when or even if I might expect release. Not for me, Wordsworth's cheerful hearth, alas. One eventful morning, however, as I wandered into the clerk's room and glanced at the mantelpiece, I saw a brief from Bernard and Tilbury of Cold Harbour Lane, Camberwell. I was interested to see whom the Queen, as prosecuting party in all criminal trials, was after this time. The title of the case was none other than Regina V. Malloy. So, 
Chirpy had perhaps returned to his old ways. I took the brief and carried it off to study at my leisure. An hour later, I had not only read it, but made a note of all the facts, together with a list of questions in preparation for when we saw our client, no doubt now a great deal less chirpy. Then I lit a small cigar, leant back, and blew what I flatter myself was a perfect smoke ring at the ceiling. The case seemed so obvious. The violation of the victim's bathroom so completely in character that it was going to be difficult to think of a defence. And yet... And yet, I thought... And yet... And yet... I was lost to the sessions of sweet, silent thought when the door burst open and I was rudely interrupted. So, Rumpel, you've got that brief. Yes, Archie, thanks to you. What do you mean, thanks to me? Well, you took me to that ghastly lunch. That's where I met Chirpy Malloy. He said he'd remember me the next time he was in trouble. Well, it seems he's back in trouble extremely soon. I have no idea what the defendant Malloy may or may not have told you. All I know is that what you have there is my brief. No, no, don't babble, Archie. This case comes from my old friend Bonnie Bernard. I know. Look more carefully. It's got my name on it. Bonnie Bernard is briefing you. He thought perhaps he should begin to cast his net a little wider. And pick up some rather odd fish. Anyway, it's a pretty hopeless case. Absolutely no defence as far as I can see. A fellow couldn't resist using the bathroom, so he left his signature. He told me he was going straight this time. They all say that, don't they? You don't believe in the possibility of redemption. People like Malloy with a string of convictions as long as your arm, hardly. Uh, can I have my brief, please? I suppose I can leave you my notes. There are one or two things you might consider. Was it pretty widely known, for instance, that this actress was in the habit of leaving jewellery lying around when she went on holiday? Presumably it was. That's why Malloy picked the place. Isn't it odd that he should be so well informed? He'd only just got out of prison. They learn a lot in those places, don't they? Perhaps. Still, it's worth a thought. Oh, and there's a witness statement in there mm. from the woman in the house that backs on to number five. Lady Sloper? The judge's wife. Yeah, the same. The good lady got up in the small hours to close a bedroom window. Looking down into the moonlit garden of number five, she could see a man come out of the back door. He must have heard her close the window because he looked up and she got a view of his face. Then she saw him walk away into the shadows by the garden wall. That is a prosecution statement. Freddie Maresfield, he's prosecuting, was good enough to let me see it. They're not calling her, and I shan't be calling her either. Why not? The description doesn't sound much like Chirpy Malloy. It was nighttime. Bright moonlight, she says. All the same, she never got a clear view. Freddie would make mincemeat of her in cross-examination, and one doesn't really like to trouble a judge's wife unless absolutely necessary. When it comes to a criminal defence, it usually pays to trouble everyone as much as possible. <sighs> Oh, uh, by the way, did you ever get around to proposing Bonnie Bernard for the Sheridan Club? Oh, yes, I did. <laughs> he was extremely grateful. Yes, evidently. Bonnie Bernard is clearly observing Wordsworth's good old rule. Sufficeth them the simple plan that they should take who have the power, and they should keep who can. <laughs> Just for a handful of silver you left us. Just for a ribbon to stick in your coat. He was sitting there, Bonnie Bernard, in Pomeroy's wine bar, 
drinking as though he hadn't been guilty of one of the most appalling acts of treachery in the history of the bar. Well, well, Mr. Bernard. Ah, hello, Mr. Rumpole. You're looking well. Keeping busy, are you? I am still carrying on a practice to the best of my poor ability in equity court. All briefs received there marked Mr. Horace Rumpole will be attended to swiftly and to my usual high standard. But as for you, Bonnie Bernard, I'm sorry to have wasted on you the lines written by the poet Browning to the great Wordsworth, whom he thought a traitor to the cause of human freedom when he sold out and became a civil servant. Civil servant? Really? I didn't know he'd done that. I'm not suggesting you did it for a handful of silver, Bernard. Perhaps it had more to do with being put up as a member of the Sheridan Club. Oh, uh, oh yes, yes, sure. Mr. Prosser was kind enough to propose yeah, me. So you were kind enough to slip him a brief by way of returning the thing. Do I need to tell you how the poet Browning went on? He alone to the rear and the slaves. You are a slave, I am suggesting, Bernard, to the dubious prize of becoming a member of a dusty old club. No, why don't you just sit down, Mr. Rumpole? Can I offer you a drop of the red? Hmm? Thank you. When I think, Bonnie, of all we've been through together, the business of the tap end of the bath murder, the case I called the Angel of Death... Oh, please, uh, Mr. Rumpole. Uh... And what about the children of the devil, or our defence of Toby Johnson? Oh, please, Mr. Rumpole... Don't go And on. how am I rewarded? My work is transferred to Archie Prosser. But quite honestly, Mr. Rumpole, I, I didn't think you'd want to be bothered. Not bothered. Listen, I met Chirpy Malloy in prison. His girlfriend's devoted. He means to take up a life of honest toil in her dad's videos R Us shop in Lewisham. Hmm. He instructs you that he never went near Chelsea on the night in question, and his girlfriend Lorraine Hickson provides him with an alibi. If all that's true, Chirpy Malloy is a candidate for redemption. Do you really think I wouldn't be bothered about his case? Well, it seems so open and shut. Nothing much to be done except go through the motions. Seems, Bernard, I know not seems. There are one or two things I could do to help. Things, Mr. Rumpel? What sort of things, exactly? Well, perhaps ask your fellow club member, Archie Prosser, to invite Lady Sloper to the next meeting of the Bunyan Society. Oh, uh, yes. I believe they're throwing a bash on the terrace at the House of Lords. Anything else? See if there were any fingerprints in the bathroom. Ah. It's just a thought. There was nothing about fingerprints in the brief you sent Archie. <laughs> There was sunlight glittering on the water and on the stone walls of the Paris of Westminster. The Bunyan Society was throwing a party for the great and the good, particularly those with ready checkbooks. The champagne frosted in glasses and the guests, relaxing far from the company of prisoners, talked in low, agreeable voices, laughed moderately, nibbled at sausages on sticks or gently introduced fragments of celery into an avocado dip. I was talking to Lady Sloper, wife of the well-known judge Beetle Sloper, so-called because his powerful glasses and protruding eyes gave him the appearance of an insect. Oh, yes. Beetle quite simply thinks people commit crimes because they're evil. He's got no patience with people saying it's all down to working mothers or early weaning. That's just as well as so much of it about nowadays. You mean early weaning? No, I, I mean crime. It's everywhere, isn't it? You even saw some from your bedroom window, I believe. 
Well, saw a man come out of the back door of the house opposite and go off across the garden. Of course, I was the only one who saw it. Beetle was away on circuit. I suppose if he hadn't been, he'd have rushed out and collared the fellow. Oh, certainly not. He'd have dug in under the duvet. You obviously don't know my husband. We all have a great deal of respect for Beetle. I thought it was the right thing to say. Oh, well, I'm sure I'd be very grateful to you for that. Her admiration for the judicial instinct clearly fell short of idolatry. You seem to have had a pretty good view of the burglar. You're not defending him, are you? No, 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 not at all. I just happened to read your statement in some papers that were delivered to me by mistake. Prosecution aren't going to call me. Beetle's terribly relieved. He said I'd probably be given a ghastly time by someone like Rumpo. I have to tell you, it's exactly what he said. Well, he was wrong. I'd have given you the warmest possible welcome. I'd have congratulated you on the clarity of your evidence and your powers of observation. In fact, I'd probably have made you my star witness. That is, if I were doing the case. So it's lucky you aren't, because I'm not being called at all. Yes, of course. Lucky for someone, anyway. Perhaps we should go and mingle with the top brass of the Bunyan Society. On our way through the browsers and sluicers, we passed Lucy Gribble. She was flashing a camera and was in the company of Archie Prosser. Over here, Archie. Oh, that's it. I've got your own pole. I'm taking pictures of the event for our new Chambers newsletter. Good for our profile, Rumpole, being close to the Bunyan Society. I saw the glamorous Home Secretary in the dangerous company of her alleged lover, Claude Erskine Brown, and his wife, Philida the Judge. Philida, how lovely. I don't think I have met your husband. I aimed, with Beetle's wife in tow, straight for Lord Crane the well-heeled Labour peer who had paid for the champagne and canapes. He was being held in no doubt fascinating conversation with the reformed con Brian Skidmore. I broke, I'm afraid, rather rudely into their discourse. Ah, Skidmore, you were dead right about Chirpy Malloy. Apparently he couldn't even go straight for a month or two. Well, that's very sad, Mr Rumpole, very sad. Yes. They tell me he's right back in the nick on another charge of burglary with use of bathroom to be taken into consideration. Well, I'm so glad you can make it, Mr Rumpole. I'm sure you know Lord Crane, our benefactor. Oh, no, dear. Mr Rumpole, oh. the old Bailey legend. Uh, Mr Rumpole, Lord Crane. We were talking about an inmate Mr Rumpole met when he had lunch with us in Worsfield. Mm -hmm. He's a serial burglar who breaks into people's homes when they're away on holiday and gives himself a bath mm. and uses all the toiletries. <laughs> What you might call a clean brick. <laughs> yes, yes, quite. Well, that's a good one, my lord. Yeah, a very good one. On a more serious note, though, I knew this chap Malloy hadn't got the strength of character to resist going back to his old ways. Everything's against you when you come out of prison. No money, no job. You meet all the old friends you did crime with. It's a hard struggle. I mean, I, I found that, and it needs strength of character. You managed it, though, didn't you, Brian? Yes, sir. I managed it, but as I say, it wasn't easy. Of course, I had a lot of help from the Bunyan Society, and I had faith. You mean religious faith? It's what the Bible tells us, isn't it? Whatever sins we might have done, we're all capable of redemption. Pity Chirpy Malloy wasn't. Oh, I'm so sorry, I forgot to introduce you both to Lady Sloper. How do you do? How do you do? By the way, Skidmore, she and the judge lived just behind the house where Chirpy did his last break-in. She was telling me that she saw a man emerging from the back door. Yes, two o'clock in the morning under a full moon. Hmm. 
apparently a tall man with a pronounced nose and a bald dome of a head, which shone hairless in the moonlight. You'd seen him very clearly until he vanished into the shadows by the garden wall. Isn't that right, Lady Sloper? Smile, please. At this, there was a flash of light, and behind it, in the shadows, Lucy was holding her newly acquired digital camera, on which, so she'd assured me, she could already see the picture she'd taken. However, Brian Skidmore, the perfect ex-prisoner, was having none of it. He snatched Lucy's camera from her and stamped upon it. Give me that! No photographs! Didn't anyone tell you? No photographs! So Brian Skidmore left the party, and indeed the Bunyan Society, only to be found, without too much difficulty, when he was later required to help the police with their inquiries. Hello? Hello, Mr. Rumpole. Well, well, my former solicitor. I hope you're feeling suitably guilt-ridden. Well, I've done as you suggested, Mr. Rumpole, and I'm extremely grateful to you, sir. So you should be. I'm glad to hear it. I've seen Lady Sloper and beefed up her statement, and we're investigating the fingerprint business. Good. Is that all, then? Uh, not quite. I'm sure you're extremely busy, as usual. No, fairly busy. Not all my work has gone to Archie Prosser. I'm sending you a brief, Mr. Rumpel. Oh, are you really? What is it? Bad case of unrenewed television licence? No, a murder. Is it indeed? The unusual thing is the death occurred in a home for the blind and partially sighted. Well, who's on trial? One of the staff? No, actually, it's one of the residents. She's blind and... I think she might have a defence. Send it round, then. I suppose you'll be taking in a leader. Oh, no, Mr. Rumpole. We thought you'd be better doing this one on your own. Bonnie Bernard, I have good news for you. You are a solicitor redeemed. Scarcely had I slid the tape off the brief which the reformed Bonnie Bernard had sent me when Adolfo Claude Erskine Brown entered the room. Come in. Ah. Well, Rumpole... It's finally happened. At the Bunyan Society do on the House of Lords Terrace, you were there, of course, at the scene. You mean at the retreat of the erstwhile perfect prisoner? Oh, no, not that. I was speaking of the woman who calls herself Home Secretary. She was there, you know. Oh, yes, I know. Uh, Erskine Brown, are you suggesting some sort of a consummation took place? Hardly. No, I thought not. I didn't notice you and the Secretary of State in any sort of clinch behind the potted plants. But of course you didn't. I was there with Philly. Ah, yes, I noticed that. You had brought along your lovely wife, the learned judge. And that woman, Brenda Haygate, came up to us. Smiling? Uh, smiling at Phyllida and engaging her in conversation. And then Phyllis said to her, of course you know my husband. So this Haygate woman looked at me and, you know, do you know what she said? No, tell me, the suspense is killing me. No, we've never met. Is that what she said? That's exactly what she said. No, we've never met. And she held out her hand for me to shake. I had kissed her, Rumpole. I had seen her to her car, and I had kissed her. On the lips? Partially on the lips, and in part on her cheek. She appeared to enjoy it. I, I'm sure she did. And now she's saying, no, we've never met. Perhaps she was lying, wanting to hide her considerable passion. Oh, please, I know you're trying to be kind, Rumpole. She had simply and genuinely forgotten my existence. No doubt she had a good deal on her mind, affairs of state and all that cracking down she goes in for. Well, what would affairs of state matter if she'd been genuinely in love? Uh, I take your point. Yeah. So, what it comes to is this. The affair's over. If it ever started. And you can spend more time with your family. You've been redeemed. 
And then what? Redeemed. You might have committed all sorts of sins with the Home Secretary before she cracked down on you. But now you've been granted redemption without even asking for it. Count yourself lucky, Erskine Brown. Well, if that's redemption, I'm not sure I care for it at all. So he left me. My next visitor was Lucy Gribble, who entered my room with a cup of steaming instant. Oh, hello, Lucy. Oh, that ruddy maniac at the Bunyan do. He absolutely wrecked my camera. Yeah. And I was getting some really good pics for the Chambers Bulletin. I know. He clearly didn't oh. like the sight of his own face. <laughs> mm. Oh, Mr Rumpel, I'm, I'm so sorry I shocked you like that. Well, like what, exactly? Well, telling your wife I hadn't noticed you actually on the exercise bike after I signed you in. Oh, oh. I'm afraid I, I got you into trouble. Well, I've been about as welcome in Foxbury Mansions as mice in the larder since you grasped on me. I've had to learn to live with it. Well, I am sorry. No, oh, that's all right. You've told the truth. Some people just can't help doing that. Don't you worry. I know exactly how you can make up for your shameful neglect of bicycling duty. Oh, what are you suggesting? When it comes to dealing with marriage, the cure is often worse than the disease. All you have to do is to remember the date next Thursday. Why, what is the date next Thursday? Just you look it up and remember it, that's all. I've booked a table for the two of you next Thursday at the Myrtle. The Myrtle? Isn't that rather pricey? It's extremely pricey, but it's your wedding anniversary and you're going to take she who must be obeyed out to dinner. The myrtle was packed out that evening. Only the networking skills of Lucy Gribble had won us a table. Against the dark wood of the walls, over the snowy white tablecloths, the faces vaguely familiar from the tabloids and the television recognized each other, gave faint little cries of greeting, and then turned their attention to their plates. Waiters in long white aprons sniffed corks, removed dripping champagne bottles from their buckets, or set out dishes. It was all very far removed from lunch at the Worsfield Nick and the case of Chirpy Malloy, the bathroom burglar. Rumpel, how do you leave a signature on a bathroom? The press claimed that that's what Chirpy Malloy did. But he simply liked wallowing in other people's aftershave. And if I know one thing about signatures, it is that they get forged. With his contacts, the blessed Brian Skidmore knew all about the jewellery scattered around that house in Chelsea. So he decided to do a job which seemed to have Chirpy's signature writ large upon it. Rumpel, I... They were so sure that it was Chirpy's work that they didn't bother to look for fingerprints. Rumpel... But... When they started looking, they found Skidmore's on a bottle of Machismo. Rumpel. He wasn't as careful as Chirpy, you see. And, of course, he never thought anyone would suspect the reformed con with a steady job in the Bunyan Society. Rumpel, they're taking a dreadfully long time with my steak. Do you think they're slaughtering the animal? You know, it's an odd thing about redemption. It seems to come to the most improbable people. Chirpy, it seems, really was redeemed. He'd got his new job and his new girlfriend, and I think he really does mean to give up invading other people's bathrooms. But the sainted Brian, Exhibit A in the case for prisoners a cure for crime, turns out not to have been redeemed at all. 
Not only did he want to get his fingers on Adele Anderson's baubles, he tried to get a reformed con to do his bird for him. And I'll tell you another thing, Rumpel. That asparagus wasn't cooked properly. It was hard as nails and had flakes of cheese all over it. It wasn't right, Rumpel. I had a complaint at the time. It might all have worked out for Skidmore if I hadn't picked up that brief sent to Archie Prosser in a moment of treachery. Well, at least I organised things so that Prosser did win the case. Somewhat rare event, as I understand it, in the life of our newest arrival in Chambers. Rumpo, do we have to spend the evening discussing your cases? Hmm? No, no, of course we don't. I, I mean, why should we discuss my cases? Quite certainly not. Hmm. What would you like to discuss? What about the reason we're here? Dining out? Is that because you're trying to redeem yourself, Rumpo? Yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. And happy wedding anniversary. You, you remembered? Well, I have to say, no, I, I didn't remember, at least not until Lucy reminded me. I told her you never remembered. Well, that's true as a general rule, but on this occasion, Lucy told me, and then I remembered it, quite clearly. You make a hopeless witness, Rumpo. Do you really think so? No one would believe your evidence for a moment. I'm not in the business of giving evidence. I'm in the business of asking questions. Ask me one, then. Do I really have to go on bicycling to nowhere, Hilda? You're not going to, are you, whatever I say? No. All right, then. I just wanted to keep you with me for a little while longer. I can't think why it is, but I don't want to lose you, Rumpo. This was so astonishing that it sent me imagining a world without she who must be obeyed. What would it be like? I seemed to see a great emptiness. A world without difficult cases. As bland, perhaps, as a world without crime or the possibility of redemption. I was about to say something along these lines when the waiter arrived and slid her main course dexterously in front of Hilda. She switched her attention from me to the waiter. I hope it says I like it, waiter. By the way, I think I should tell you, the asparagus was not right. Not right? What was wrong with it, exactly? Well, to begin with, it was hard as nails. I almost broke my teeth on it. That's right. Al dente. Well, we can do without the al dente, thank you. And someone had put bits of hard, smelly cheese on it. Parmesan. Exactly. So you admit it. Don't put cheese on asparagus. It wasn't right, you know. I want you to know that, because we're likely to be back at the same time next year. Isn't that correct, Rumpo? Absolutely. In Rumpel Redeemed, by John Mortimer, Horace Rumpel was played by Timothy West, his wife Hilda, Prunella Scales, Lucy Gribble, Sophie Thompson, Bonnie Bernard, Bruce Alexander, and Claude Erskine Brown, Nigel Anthony. Archie Prosser and Lord Crane were played by Nicholas Leprevo, Brian Skidmore, Carl Howman, Chirpy Malloy, Stephen Critchlow, Brenda Haygate, Francis Jeter, and Lady Sloper, Richenda Carey. Rumpel Redeemed was directed by Marilyn Imrie and is a Catherine Bailey production for BBC Radio 4. <laughs>